this is Christina Navis from at SLPs of Color. Stephanie and I had the pleasure of interviewing Karina Seichow, who's a licensed, certified, credentialed speech-language pathologist, AAC specialist, and private practice owner about her educational experience, how she got into the field of speech pathology, excelling in school while dealing with adversity, microaggressions, and how to deal with them, her passion for AAC, as well as some sage advice. So stick around. Um, so I was born and raised in Oakland. I'm uh, fifth generation Oakland. Uh, my great great grandparents came here during the um, migration of um, Black folks from the South. They came here from Texas, um, and they um, settled in Oakland. So they bought a home, the home we live in. Actually, they bought the home that we live in. My family and I live there now. I live there with my mom and my husband. And so um, I was born in in and raised there. I went to school mostly in Alameda, though the neighboring city. Um, I went to private school until the fifth grade. Um, when I was growing up in Oakland, it had been taken over by the government. Um, and it was, Oakland was going through a lot at the time. And so it wasn't, um, my mom didn't feel that we would get the education that she thought that we deserved. Um, so we went to school in, in Alameda. I went to high school at Encinal. Um, and I graduated from there and then moved to Fresno with my siblings. So Fresno. Yeah. What was out in Fresno? What made you and your siblings move out there? Well, my older sister was already there. Mm -hmm. Um, so my, um, older sister went to Fresno state, um, for whatever reason, like, I don't know why she chose Fresno. I didn't know anything about Fresno growing up. We hadn't heard of like Fresno or the central Valley. Um, but I think that she just wanted to get a little further from home, but not so far that she couldn't come home if she didn't want to or if she wanted to. Um, and so my twin sister, though, we were in the marching band coming up. Um, she's a musician. She plays like five instruments. She's really artsy. Um, and so she went there for the band. And so um, I wanted to go to UC Davis, but my um, I'm the youngest of four siblings. And so and I have a twin sister. So we are the youngest of four. Um, and so my great grandmother and my aunt and my brother all convinced me to go to Fresno State with my siblings. I, I think that my mom put them all up to it because she was nervous for me to be by myself, I think maybe as the baby. Um, so I followed my two sisters to Fresno State um, and ended up thankfully having a really good experience there. So, so I stayed in Fresno and I got both of my degrees in Fresno. Okay. Um, I'm curious, um, how did you pick speech therapy? I love hearing people's like stories about how they've come to this field so yeah so I have an uncle so all of my family uh, that doesn't live in Texas lives in Oakland like everybody lives in Oakland um, and so one of my uncles had a stroke when I was like I think three years old um, and that left him bedridden and so my aunt took care of him um, for a little over 20 years before he passed away um, a few years ago when I was in in college so maybe like seven years ago and so my uncle um, was, she, he had a bed wound that my aunt couldn't clear on her own. Um, and so she ended up having to put him for a short-term stay um, into a skilled nursing facility. So one day I went to go um, see my uncle and like have lunch and sit with him. Uh, he was at a facility that was three blocks, I think, from my house. So I walked over there and brought him lunch. Um, and we were chatting. And so it turns out that a couple weeks before then, he had been talking to the executive director um, about his niece that wanted to be a physical therapist, and that was me. 
And so um, the executive director came and met me when I came. I was actually kind of shocked that she was interested. Um, and so she offered me um, the opportunity to kind of come in the summertime and shadow the physical therapist. And so I did. And when I got there, she offered me a job. So I worked there through the summer um, and on my lunchtime and, and um, during the dinner rush, when I wasn't working, I was following the physical therapist to see what they were doing. Um, but while I was following the physical therapist, you know, I kind of wondered like, who's that lady, you know, and what is she doing? Um, and then just a few weeks after that, um, she was replaced by, or she left and another a man came. Um, but I wanted to know still, like, what is he doing and why is he feeding that person? Um, and, you know, what are they working on? And so although I was there to follow the physical therapist, um, I decided to, to fit, wrap up my kind of experience there. I went back to school. And then in the next summer, they called me back to come and work there again. And so when I went back there, um, the, the therapy team essentially said that they felt like I was more of like a speech pathologist um, because I really like to talk a lot and they could notice that I was like observing the people there. Um, and so I decided to kind of um, end up following the, the speech pathologist. And so then I changed my major. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seemed like so much cooler, but I had no idea what a speech mm -hmm. pathologist was until I wanted to be one. Um, and it was that, that was my first ever experience even having heard of a speech pathologist despite wanting to enter into the therapies. Um, and it was the, um, it was kind of the first, the first time that anybody in my life too had heard of what a speech pathologist was. So, so I ended up doing a lot of research and found it at Fresno State. Thank goodness. That's awesome. Uh, those opportunities to shadow and really learn and see what um, a speech language pathologist does. I feel like those opportunities are so essential because it's the way that people find out about our careers, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of mirrors my experience too. Like I, I didn't know what it was until someone told me and then I got to observe and then I was like, Oh, I really think I could do this. I like this. I want to try it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So tell us a little bit about Fresno state and your experience there. Yeah, so I um, started off my experience in the dorms. So my twin sister and I um, moved into the dorms together. Um, we did not live in the same room because we both wanted a more authentic experience. Mm -hmm. um, and so <laughs> when I started off at Fresno State, I started off as a physical therapy major, and I was taking classes in that arena. I found out, in addition to the experience that I just talked about, I found out that physical therapy majors had to take cadaver classes, and I yes. was not interested. And that is why I am not a nurse. <laughs> yep. No, thank you. No, thank you. So I, I want little... the living folks. Right. Shout out to all the dead folks, but definitely. Yeah. But I like, want to be with the only. yes. <laughs> Yikes! So I um, decided that 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 wasn't for me. Um, I thought that I wanted to be a pharmacist, but chemistry was a little bit difficult for me, so I um, decided against pharmacy too. Um, and so I finally, the third time around, finally landed on speech pathology. And so this was on my, my second year at Fresno State in the second semester. And so I ended up finding who would become my mentor and made the biggest impact in my life while I was at Fresno State. Um, her name is Dr. Frances Palmaville. And so in my third year there, I finally started taking major classes. And so it took me five years to graduate because I studied abroad while I was there. And so if you wanted to study abroad, you had to stay for the whole year. Um, but I took classes there and the first two classes that I took in speech pathology were phonetics um, and the anatomy and physiology of the head, neck and throat. 
And I thought that those were amazing. And I found all my nerd joy and all my nerd love. <laughs> um, and so I decided that that was for me. I was a little bit put off by, um, I guess you could say like the lack of diversity, but it wasn't a deterrent. Um, and so I, um, I stayed with the course. By the time I got into my fourth year, I remember, or I think it was maybe the, even the end of my third year, um, I remember finding out that you had to get a master's degree in order to um, practice as a, as a licensed speech language pathologist. And a few weeks after that, people were starting to get accepted or denied from the programs. In that same year, speech pathology had made um, the Forbes top 15 list of best jobs. And so speech pathology was starting to become inundated with people who wanted to get master's degrees um, or who even just wanted to study. And so it was getting more and more difficult to get into the speech pathology program. And so um, I remember going outside after people were, more people of course got denied than got accepted. Um, and so um, a lot of the times when we're in high school, people talk about getting to college, but nobody talks about staying in college mm -hmm. um, and nobody talks about getting a master's degree. And I don't, there's nobody in my family now with the exception of me and my sister um, and recently one of my cousins um, who have master's degrees. Mm -hmm. And so getting a master's degree was not at the forefront of my mind at all. And so I remember after people were getting denied and knowing that you couldn't work without a master's degree, I went yeah. outside and I called my mom and was like full blown crying like, but you know, I can't really do this, but I was already over a year into the program and taking the classes, um, but I didn't feel like I was good enough. I didn't feel like I would be able to get into the master's program. Um, and if I did get into the master's program, I wasn't sure how we were gonna pay for it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was really, really deterred, but thankfully, Thankfully, my mom is really amazing, um, and she really encouraged me to stay the course. Um, and she, you know, she really, she told me that I belong there. But I felt like at the time there were so many things against me um, staying, but I stayed. You know, and it worked. Thank goodness. So um, after she gave me a, quite an encouraging conversation, I looked for internships, or not quite internships, but I looked for opportunities to volunteer. Um, and so I ended up volunteering on campus with one of the um, the cochlear implant preschool. So oh, it was wow. run by the speech pathology um, master's degree students. Um, and so I also at the time was working at a um, an organization called Jumpstart. Um, and so Jumpstart partnered with local Head Starts. Um, yeah, and I was gonna say that's the early intervention, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, programs. and mm -hmm. so the Jumpstart um, tutors are called tutors. So essentially the Jumpstart tutors go and they tutor um, low socioeconomic um, preschoolers, essentially. So you could work with somebody anywhere from 2.9 to five years old, um, and either they were behind in their language skills or they were behind in their social skills. Um, and so I worked for that program for five years. I worked at the Head Start for three years, but then I worked behind the scenes supporting the tutors for two years. Um, and so that was kind of amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. And this is when you were in your undergrad about supply for grad school? Yeah. So this was all um, throughout my undergraduate. It was a work study program. So um, I worked through work study on it. Mm -hmm. um, and it was it was pretty amazing. I think it really helped shape my experience. For a while, I thought that I wanted to be a preschool teacher. Um, that didn't last for, for very long, but I thought that I wanted to be a preschool teacher, which is what led me to Head Start. Mm -hmm. um, after I got to Head Start, 
um, I decided that I kind of wanted to do something more. There was a woman um, who would come in, she was the speech pathologist, go figure, um, who would come in. And so after my interest peaked about becoming a, a speech pathologist, it seemed that I started like seeing speech pathologists everywhere after I found out about it. Um, and so she was coming to work with one of the little girls who had Down syndrome. And so she would allow me to observe her sessions. And so um, that, of course, continued my love and desire to continue to pursue speech pathology. And so after that, I couldn't, because I was no longer an undergrad and I had graduated, but thankfully got into the master's program at Fresno State. Um, it was the only program that I applied to. Mm -hmm. um, in hindsight, I think that was kind of dumb. Um, but, <laughs> um, but my bandwidth at the time for um, doing extra things um, was really restricted because I would say, I think in the last year of my um, undergrad, and then of course through grad school, my family lost like um, quite a few family members. So my dad passed away unexpectedly, um, and my great grandmother passed away, and my uncle passed away. So a lot of people, two of my friends committed suicide. So like a lot of people were mm -hmm. um, were passing away, and I was like full of mm -hmm. grief and my like my bandwidth to do anything that wasn't mm -hmm. um, a part of my just regular daily routine was like very minimal. Um, and so I put all my eggs in one basket and I ended up applying to Fresno State. Thankfully, I got in. Um, but I couldn't work anymore at Jumpstart because I wasn't an undergrad student. Um, so I ended up going on to work for, I became a resident director um, at Fresno State. And so I ended up being in charge of a hall and RAs and um, PSAs, the public safety assistants, um, and then the resident advisors. And so they paid for me to, they paid for six of my units to go to school. Um, and then they also paid, of course, for my room and board. And then they paid me every month. And that was the way that I was able to afford my first year um, of graduate school. Wow. Yeah, that is a heavy load to carry while still trying to grow. I think a lot of people go through that actually, you know, similar experiences and, mm -hmm. you know, may have, have quit, but good for you for like persevering, you know, mm -hmm. that, yeah, I, I couldn't imagine doing all of that. Like, yeah. and, yeah. um, and smart of you too, to, to say, okay, I still need a job. What is something that will be mutually beneficial mm -hmm. and, and doing that resident program too. Mm -hmm. It's really smart. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 it was good. A lot of us have to work, you know, through our college career. So you seem to have found like really good opportunities that would, you know, be around children, lead you in the right direction for being a speech and language pathologist. Yeah. And shout out to those work study programs because yeah. I know I signed up for all of those too, yeah. um, because that's what helps you get through college and still, you know, be able to pay the bills that you have. Yeah, yeah. and without having to go into so much debt, too, because mm -hmm. I know that's a big thing for okay. students, like signing up for loans and things like that. Definitely. Um, and they had a partnership with AmeriCorps. Um, so if you worked a certain amount of hours, which was technically all of the work study hours that you needed, um, you got $1,000 at the end of your time to go toward your student loans if you took out student loans. Um, so first, if you got the money through AmeriCorps, you had to you know, put it toward your student loans. But if you didn't have any student loans, say that you... I think they let you pocket the $1,000. I did have student loans, so mm -hmm. I used all of it. I worked there for five years, so I ended up, um, I think, with like $5,750, and all of that went toward paying off one of my student loans. Nice. So it was a good program. It still exists, actually. Right. Oh, so okay. yeah. shout out to Neil. 
<laughs> at Fresno State. <laughs> right, yeah, at Fresno State. Shout out to Neil Dion at Fresno State. Thank you, Neil. <laughs> uh, you had mentioned before we talk a little bit more about grad school, but you mentioned that you did study abroad. Can you tell us about that? Where'd you go? Yeah, so I went to London. It was pretty amazing. London. I only did London. London, England. Um, so I only did a winter session, but um, I wanted to study abroad. I like found the program, I think like really randomly. I was walking in the halls one day of one of the... Um, of one of the buildings and I saw a flyer. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I wanna go to London. Um, and both of my sisters had been all-stars in high school. So one of my sisters was an all-star cheerleader um, and she went to London and she was in the parade. And then my twin sister was an all-star drum major and she went to London and she was in the parade. Um, and I, I was neither. And so, <laughs> um, and so I was like kind of just walking through the halls and I was like, huh. I want to go to London. And so I went to this um, talk that they were having about being able to sign up for the program. Um, and at the time they were full, but then they added another teacher, which added another section. Um, and so my family really banded together um, and then collectively were able to send me, mostly my mom and my grandma were able to send me to, to London. So I studied there for three weeks. Um, it was pretty amazing. We took a class there. We had two teachers and I think there were 40 of us, but they rented a whole building. Um, and they, I think they partnered with one of the local institutions there. Um, and so we took a winter session class and um, it was awesome. While I was there, I went to Ireland with friends for four days. And so that was really nice too. Um, but it was, and they gave me, I think they gave me a scholarship too of a thousand dollars. And so it was kind of the perfect experience. And I think one of the perfect um, ways for me to leave the country for the first time. And so it was really nice. And it like started my love of traveling. Mm -hmm. That sounds amazing. Yeah. You're going to have to tell us about travels, but tell us a little bit about grad school. So you were working through your first year of grad school and then... Yeah, so I worked through my first year of grad school. Unfortunately, um, unfortunately, I, I don't think that there is a lot of um, understanding of the different um, socioeconomic statuses of the students that come through graduate programs. Um, and so I was one of three people um, in my class that had a job. And so I remember when I was a senior and at the beginning of graduate school, our professors highly frowning upon people working. So the reality is, is that um, graduate school is, is a lot of work in and of itself. And so the first year of graduate school, you take a bunch of classes. I think we took five classes, I think. Um, and then we also had clinic. And clinic lasted anywhere from, I think, two to three hours a day. Um, and it maybe two or three times a week, depending on which clinic you had. And so I didn't have a choice. I needed to work. Um, and I remember what a part of my job as a resident director is I was on call every three weeks, seven days, 24 hours a day. And I had a phone with me at that time. Most of the time I wouldn't get calls during the actual school day because there were people on campus that worked for housing that was able to um, help with situations during the day and I mostly only worked at night. However, we had to get a paper signed that said that if there was a major incident, we would leave class or leave whatever it is that we were doing um, to go help with the residence halls. And so I took that paper um, to one of my professors, all of our professors had to sign it, so I took that paper to one of my professors and I'll never forget that this particular professor, after I told him the situation, sat back in his chair 
and said, even our brightest clinicians don't do well when they have a job. This was my first interaction with this professor. It was the first time they had ever met me. Um, and I remember kind of looking at them like, sign the paper. Like, I don't have a choice. You don't have a choice. And, and I didn't ask for commentary. And right. So, like, I didn't. I'm putting you on notice. I'm not asking for your permission. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so they did. They said, well, OK, let me know if you need anything. Um, and so they signed the paper. What an empty gesture, though. Let me know if you need anything. But I've already mm-hmm. pretty yeah. much told you that don't do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I felt like in that moment that that professor, one, didn't know anything about me or my work ethic, um, and two, was doubting me and like mm-hmm. doubting my skills and already and the yeah. time. Off the bat, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't feel like that professor in the moment was giving me a fair shot. And so and so I, clueless to mm-hmm. the reason why you're asking him to sign the paper. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, well, no, it was written on the paper. Right. Right. Like, but, <laughs> right. but like clueless to the fact that you need to work to yeah. survive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that it wasn't it wasn't an option. Right. It's not an option. Yeah. Um, and so I took it to two. I took that same paper to two of my other professors and they both had me as an undergrad student. And so one of the professors said, you know, oh, Karina, I wish that you didn't have to work, but I understand. Um, and anything that I can do, please let me know. And so she signed the paper. And the third per- the third professor said, it was like really kind of endearing because it was the last signature that I needed. Um, but she said, Karina, if anybody can do it, it's you. Like if mm. anybody has to juggle this many mm-hmm. balls, like you're going to do it and you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And so it was in that moment that I felt like, okay, I got this. And at this point, I think we were like, the third passing in of like people in my life who were beginning to pass away. It was like the third person. So I kind of was like on this, um, on this train almost give me what I need and let me go, mm-hmm. you know? And so they, they all ended up signing the paper. I had a successful year. I ended the year with a 4.0. Hey, and so hey. Way to go. Hey, hey. you proved all your haters wrong. Showing them haters. Okay. Um, and so I ended up doing um, I ended up doing pretty well, but not without support. So when I was a senior, um, right before I entered into the graduate program, I asked Dr. Francis Palmaville to be my mentor. I had become a McNair scholar, and so um, as a part of the McNair scholar program, they ready, ready you to become um, a doctorate level studier, academic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I knew that at some point I also wanted to get my doctorate degree. And so th- I knew that they also would help me with research. And I, I also knew ahead of time that I wanted to write a thesis um, as my culminating experience. And so I wanted to get as much for, for free as I could from the McNair program, which ended up being really great at Fresno State. Shout out to the McNair program. Nice. Um, and so um, you needed a you needed somebody to be your mentor. And so um, Fran ended up um, agreeing to be my mentor. So she would come with me every now and then to meetings, and um, she would just kind of help me along the way. And little did I know in in the moment that I asked her that she would become more than um, an academic mentor to me, and she would also become. Um, a personal mentor. So the summer between um, the summer between the time that I graduated um, undergrad and um, started graduate school um, is when my dad abruptly passed away. And so she 
she ended up supporting me a lot through the transition um, of that and like starting the actual grad program. And I had started my job, my new job as a resident director. And so she was, she was really wonderful in just knowing that I had her in the background for support. Um, and so I was, I was actually doing, I did okay. I didn't need any, um, I didn't need too much extra from anybody. And that was really nice. Um, but as, as time went on, um, my great grandmother then like, you know, passed away a, a few months after that. Um, and so I started to need like more and more support from my educators and they were wonderful, thankfully. Um, and so I, I took all of the classes that I needed to take and, um, I ended up needing um, just to thankfully kind of elongate some of the timelines to turn things in. Um, and I ended up taking a couple of assessments late, um, but that was kind of like the big stuff. Um, I didn't end up taking any breaks because I felt like if I leave school, then I, I might not come back, you know, you know, like you it might be too like hard. Like if I left grad in grad school, like not taking that kind of break or no, like, um, a break. So after, so after my grandmother passed away, my godfather passed away, mm -hmm. um, a few months after that. And so it, it was starting to become, I was like a ball of grief almost like yeah. people would tell me on campus. Usually I wear like really bright colors, um, really like happy, like big personality. Um, and people on campus were telling me that I was like wearing a lot of dark colors you know mm -hmm. and um like you know sometimes I would like walk to class crying um mm -hmm. and like sit in class and you know I would like take notes but I'd just be there just kind of like not know, really I was, present. I was there but like I wasn't really right. present you yeah. know um and so, so yeah. yeah so one of my professors um asked me if I wanted to take a leave of absence um oh, and so I ended up saying no mm -hmm. because I felt like if I took a leave of absence I wouldn't I probably wouldn't go back. Or if mm -hmm. I did go back, I knew two of my best friends um, were also in the program and we became best friends after we got into the program because you need that kind of support. Yes, um, so, two of my, <laughs> so two of my best friends were in the program and I thought, well, if I leave now, like I'm not gonna have the support of them. Mm -hmm. um, and who knows if I'll be able to make the friendships that I've made, you know? Um, and so I ended, up, I ended up staying. And it was one of the ways that I think was helping me uh, at the time, I thought that it was helping me cope, you know, to stay in school um, and kind of like push it out of my mind. And in some ways, I thought I was doing it for them. You know, mm -hmm. like if I like I need to stay in because that mm -hmm. will make them happy, mm -hmm. you know, and that will make them proud. So it was almost like um, in honor of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so um, the second year of graduate school, I couldn't I couldn't work because you're like working for free yeah, <laughs> during internships, those, you know, yeah, student teaching, right, student teaching. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was working for free um, at I worked at the hospital from eight to four. And then we went to class three days a week from six to nine. And then um, in the second semester, I was working at the school from eight to three at a high school um, where the caseload was all deaf and hard of hearing students, um, which was my passion at the time. And and um, really highly niched at the time. And so I ended up working there from eight to three, and then I went to school three days a week from six to nine, and then one day a week, I think from six to seven o'clock, something like that, or five mm -hmm. to seven o'clock maybe. I don't know, five to six. I try to like push it out of my mind. Right. Um, and so I ended up doing that. That was like my life, and I didn't have time to work. And so 
um, I had saved money and I got scholarships. And so that was able to, and then of course, financial aid and grants and things. Um, and that was how I paid for the second year that I was in graduate school. And I ended up finishing the year um, with uh, a 4.0 also. Okay, um, amazing. Get it y'all, girl. I was out here focused. Super okay. focused. Focused. Super focused. Yes. And, and my, um, and halfway through, I think the start of the second semester of my second year um, in the graduate program, um, I had been nominated. My my school or my teachers um, told me that they had nominated me for the Dean's Medal. And so um, I went through like a series of processes. Like I went, I went through an interview and all these different things and they ended up um, granting me um, the Dean's Medal. And so I thought that that was, that was nice of them too. And a testament, I think, to um, how they felt about me and my ability to um, work for what I wanted and, and getting through the program. And it felt solidifying to me, especially for how I started off the program with some of my professors um, and then what they thought about me finally at the end of the program. Um, I'm six years out of school, and so I think my timelines could be a little messed up. But um, I think in January or February, um, Dr. Palmaville, who was my mentor, um, came to me, and she said that the department was nominating me um, for the Dean's Medal. I hadn't heard quite of the Dean's Medal, and I, um, but I knew that it was awesome because you had to be nominated. You, you couldn't apply. Um, and so she told me then what the process would be like. And so um, it turns out that within, so Fresno State is the university. At Fresno State, there are, I think, nine colleges. And so one of the colleges was the college that I was in. Um, and it was a college that focused on um, services and rehabilitation. Um, so it included majors like nursing, mine, which was speech pathology, physical therapy, things like that, Re- recreation therapy, social work. Um, so it had lots of majors like that. I think there were nine majors um, also within the college. And so each department every year put up one person um, that they thought deserved the award or um, was representative of the department. And so after that, everybody is uh, interviewed um, by um, the dean of the college. And so after the the interview, I was at Kasha. I was presenting a poster at Kasha, actually, when I found out. Um, so I wrote a thesis um, about, um, at the time, my niche was cochlear implants. Mm-hmm. And so um, I had written a thesis. And then I ended up putting together a poster. And I presented my poster um, in three different forms. And one of them was Kasha. And so I was there, like, I was, I've, I think I had just gotten done presenting and I got a call from Fresno State. Um, and initially they told us that we would find out um, whether we got it within like three days and a week had passed. So I had already started telling people that I didn't get it. Um, and so I ended up, I got a phone call and Sounds I like a was, little self-doubt, Karina. I know, I was totally <laughs> just, self-doubting. Just a little I, mean, I was kind of a self-doubter when I was a little younger. Um, and so I was like, I, you know, I couldn't have, I couldn't have gotten it. Um, and so they called me and congratulated me. And interestingly, right when, like right when that phone call ended, um, I saw my mentor and two of my other professors and some of my classmates like coming down the stairwell. Um, and so like right at that moment, I just like ran and like hug her. And, you know, mm-hmm. it was amazing because they called her before they called me, um, I think because the department had nominated me. And so we all just kind of like 
rejoiced like at Kasha. Um, And it felt like it felt really monumental. Um, I think because um, in the beginning of the graduate program, I felt really unseen and I felt really unheard. Um, And I sometimes, um, I guess, almost felt like an imposter. You know, I was like treading roads um, that I think didn't that I didn't know ever existed for me and that I didn't see a lot of people that look like me in. Um, and right before that, like right before I got the award, um, there we had a black newspaper on campus. And so um, right before that, I was contacted by a representative of the black newspaper and they had wanted to um, get a story and take a picture of all of the black people that were graduating, black or African-American or Caribbean, um, who had um, grad- who were graduating with a master's degree. And so I found out at the time that there were only six of us. So of like thousands of people on the Fresno State campus, there were only six um, people who identified as like black, African-American, um, Caribbean, um, who were graduating with a master's degree. And so I remember feeling like really unsettled by that statistic because why? When there's like literally thousands of people graduating with master's degrees. Um, And so I felt like I, when I was awarded the Dean's Medal that it was like not just for me, but it was for, you know, it was like almost like for everybody. It was like a collective award, you know? And, um, And I finally in that moment like felt seen I felt heard. I always felt seen and heard by my mentor, but not always um, in the profession or just in the department kind of collectively. And so um, yeah, I did felt you, like it was a big moment. Did you, sorry to interrupt, but did you say there was only like three people of color in your program or? There were five. five. Yeah. So oh, there okay. were five people of color. There were three color. people that worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That worked while in master's program with you, but there was only five people of color. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there were, um, there was me who identifies as black. Um, and then two of my best friends, one of them is um, Chilean and Mexican. And then the other one is Mexican. And then there were two other women. Um, who were Mexican, and then all of the rest of my um, classmates um, identified as white, mm-hmm. as far as I understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. so... Um, yeah, so that is monumental to be like, one of six black students getting their master's on your campus. Mm-hmm. And to be the recipient of the Dean's Medal, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it felt like a... Um, it definitely felt amazing. Yeah. felt like a big what deal. A it actually still kind of feels like a big deal. Yeah, yeah. no, it is a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Like, can we get a, a shirt made for you that says right. Dean's Medal Dean recipient <laughs> right. Fresno State, the hey. year, one of six black folks that got their master's this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I also want to see that black newspaper article about you yes. and the yeah. other, the other students. That's really yeah. interesting. I'll have to, like, dig it out. Yeah. Send yeah. it to us, please. Yes. Yeah. I definitely will. And I wanted to ask you, like, because the program that you were in was so lacking of diversity, like, did you seek out diverse friends or um, relationships in other uh, areas of other parts of your campus? Mm-hmm. I did. Um, so I talked about working for Jumpstart for Young Children, which was um, primarily made up. Uh, it was like really diverse, but like the core, we were we were called the core. There was over 100 of us. And the core was made up of um, mostly people of color um, of so many descents. And that was amazing. And so I found um, a lot of joy there. Um, one of the other things is one of my um, now good friends and sorority sister, she was in the master's um, 
um, program at the time, but she helped uh, start um, Sigma Lambda Gamma. Um, And so I joined a sorority. (laughs) (laughs) So I went Greek. Um, I started a sorority with um, some of my good friends at the time. So one of my line sisters was my roommate at the time. And then one of my best friends um, who's still one of my best friends. And so we were able to recruit some other people to join us. Um, and so we started a sorority on campus. It's a multicultural sorority. And Love truly, it. like my line sisters, there's seven of us. Um, and there is um, black, white, Mexican, and Hmong representation. That's amazing. All in seven women. Um, and then we have, we got a few more lines. And similarly, we have like significant um, representation in, in the other lines. And so that's where I think I spent most of my um, time and energy, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's where I kind of got my cup filled, you yes. know, was I would go to class and then I would meet up with my sorority sisters to study and eat lunch and we would take classes together, like some of the um, like physical classes. So like me and one of my best friends didn't know how to swim at the time. And mm-hmm. so we took um, beginning swimming. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was really nice. And we would just kind of link up. And I think that that's where I found most of my, um, that's where I found most of myself, mm-hmm. you know, and being able to identify um, be, or decide how I wanted to identify and who I wanted to be. Um, that's where I was able to really be who I wanted to be. That's wonderful. And so you started that chapter at your school. Yeah. And actually yeah. it was only, it was a colony and we only made it to colony status. Um, and then we ended up um, like shutting down. And so I'm not where, I don't know where things are now with it mm-hmm. um but we ended up like you know shutting down but I still keep in touch with all of them yeah and so yeah it's amazing I had a similar experience too so wanted to yeah. give a shout out to that Greek family Greek <laughs> unity hey <laughs> Lambda Theta new repping in the house <laughs> love it hey, yeah yeah I mean that's the thing too is that you know like sometimes when you can't find the communities that you're looking for um sometimes you have to build them yourself yeah, yeah you create um, your and own and so that's what we yeah. were able to create do your own space yes. and, and represent yeah. and yeah. be heard in your space yeah. yes definitely yeah so you graduated mm-hmm. yeah so i went on to um graduate from fresno state um five years in undergrad two years in grad school and i ended up moving home so like my my mom and my family of course were all here in oakland um, and my um, high school sweetheart was in Oakland, so I went away to college, um, but he stayed. He stayed and he lived at home and um, he took a different um, track to his career. And so I wanted to be closer to them, um, primarily to my family and to my now husband. Um, and so I ended up moving home and I moved in with my mom. It was just my mom living there at the time. I think and my brother, actually, my brother was there too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I ended up moving back home and a few months later, my um, now husband proposed and so we, you know, like essentially like started life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got a job. So after I graduated from school, I think all of my classmates had jobs before we left school. So thankfully, and not, and not, um, mm-hmm. there is a significant shortage of speech language pathologists. And I did not, I was kind of unsure what I wanted to do. Like if I wanted to stay in Fresno and like work there and live there, my twin ended up staying there. I have a twin sister and she ended up staying there. And so I was trying to decide if that's what I wanted to do or if I wanted to move home. I ended up deciding um, not to stay in Fresno and I ended up moving home. Um, But I finally, I guess when life finally slowed down um, and everything was finally over and I didn't have a ton of time on my hands, um, is unfortunately I think is when the grief set in 
And so I didn't apply to any jobs and um, I, I didn't do anything. <laughs> so I kind of didn't, I cared a lot, but I like didn't care. Um, so um, at the end of July, I was like, oh shoot, I don't have a job. <laughs> and so I ended up applying um, to, to a job and the first job that I applied to, I got it. Um, and so I, I still work there. I love it. This is my sixth year. I work at a high school um, in Pacifica. So it's a little bit of a commute, but I love the school that I work at. Um, it's a small school, only of, I think about 600 students. Mm-hmm. Um, and the curriculum is highly focused on social justice. Yes. Um, and so, yes. Um, and so they're quite in line with um, who, who I was as a person um, and who I wanted to grow to be. And the students that I serve, there's an actual program that exists there for students who are on a certificate track um, as opposed to a diploma track. And they had three classrooms and they had three teachers. And I really love that the students that I um, were going to be working with were actually being challenged academically um, and that there was like significant rigor to their program and that people were in the same kind of school of thought that I was in. Um, And so... I ended up um, staying at at the school that I was at. Um, I'm still there, and I still commute because I still love it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I expanded to the adult program too. So I also ended up working um, at the adult transition program. So the law states that um, school districts have to serve students until they turn 22. And so um, there, most all districts really um, have a program for students who um, are adults, and so typically 18 or 19 to 22 years old. And so our program exists at the adult campus, which I think is perfect. Um, and so this is where students learn life skills. So they learn to take the bus, um, they learn to sweep and mop and do laundry and cook for themselves. Um, they do still work on some academics, but the academics that they work on are academics that are consistent with um, what it takes to be an adult so if they're working on math it's like money math Mm -hmm. Um, and so I ended up working with the adult students for a really long time this is actually my first year that I'm not going to be working with the adult students Um, but I found um, I really found love and joy in that um, because our society I feel like forgets that children with disabilities become adults with disabilities Um, and so it has been quite amazing to be able to work with students both at the high school um, and adult level. And that setup of the high school and the adult level sounds amazing. Like we need more of that everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you don't hear about too many um, adult programs. Yeah. Right. Well, I right. think especially to like, because Stephanie and I both work with younger students. Mm-hmm. And it's important for parents to think in future terms too. Like we're building foundations when they're in pre-K and elementary, which are the grades that I'm dealing with, mm-hmm. and, and middle school. And then when they get to high school, like given where they're at, okay, what's going to be su- uh, setting them up for success in the future? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and having that adult program, it's like, okay, we still have a little bit of time with them. Let's give them as many tools as we can before they leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the really important thing about being a speech pathologist in the high school um, and adult settings are is that a lot of the times we're shifting from ideologies about delay and parents are able to really cope more with the idea that their students have disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is yeah. in both the moderate to severe um, 
programs and in the mild to moderate programs. And so it, it is at this time, like you both said, that, that it is at this time where we start to implement um, different strategies, you know, in assistive technology where we're not always focusing pretty heavily on remediating um, whatever it is at play, mm-hmm. which has been worked on, you know, for 14 or 15 years before they even get to me right. at this point it we give the opportunity to be able to shift strategies um, and I have found that many of the students have been successful with the shift in strategies mm-hmm. and so it sounded like in the beginning you were focused on deaf hard of hearing and cochlear implants but now it seems like your niche is more in the AAC field and assistive technology can you share how that evolved and how um, you became the AAC specialist sure. for where you work sure Um, So there are four high schools in the district that I work in. Um, And so I essentially, after my first year working at the high school, um, it became very clear to me. So I began working at this high school right out of college. And so this is where I had my CFY um, and I've been ever since. And so it became very clear to me, not even, I think, within the first year, I think even sooner than that, um, that many of the students, a lot of the strategies that I was using um, and, and working with them on, a lot of them gave me feedback such as like, we've done this before, it doesn't work, you know, this is too hard, you know, like what else is there? Um, it became very clear that some of them needed assistive technology. Some of them were having difficulties with memory. Some of them were having even the difficulties that they're having with language. You know, how can I support them when I'm not around, when they've been having, you know, experiencing difficulties with language since they could talk? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it became very clear to me um, that the students needed something more than like just me, um, seeing me twice a week for 45 minutes. Um, and so um, I decided to become an assistive technology specialist to support their endeavors. Um, AAC came in um, when we started getting students with AAC devices, and I had no idea what to do. So although all of us take classes around AAC, we don't we don't get a lot of information and so i feel like our programs do a really good job of focusing a lot on early intervention on speech like articulation area i had a really great class on fluency when i was in school um, and then we have a lots and lots of classes i feel like on language and language development um, but we don't have a lot of classes that focus on um, aac um, or just kind of like the later in life you know, things that could happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I decided on AAC because our district hired um, an AAC specialist to come into the classroom and conduct an AAC assessment with one of our students. And so that person came, they mostly programmed the device, but like kind of, but not really. Um, They gave the, the device to the student and then they never came back. I found out later um, that our district had paid this company or this person, like I'm not really sure, but they paid $5,000 for that. And then they did it again. And still, myself and my colleagues and the teachers were all still stuck. Like, what do we do with this thing? And the reality is, is that um, even when we're using AAC, you know, AAC is still just language treatment, but with an AAC device. But the difficulty was programming the device, choosing a device. I mean, what do we do? We had no idea. And it felt really scary um, as a second year SLP. And so um, it, for some financial reasons to the district and, and for a desire when I think about like why I chose to become, become an SLP to begin with, which was to be able to help people communicate, mm-hmm. um, I decided that I would pursue um, AAC. 
And so my district, thankfully, um, got behind that, I think because there was some, you know, financial gain for them (laughs) to not keep having to pay companies. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But personally, I was really interested because I didn't feel like I feel like the students were being cheated. I feel like they weren't getting what they needed from us as professionals um, because people were coming in from the outside who didn't really know them. And um, and it was like when they came and we never knew when they were coming or if they would come back. Um, And so I ended up the district paid for me to take a um, to take a class to become an assistive technology specialist. Um, It was both myself and the occupational therapist. Um, And so the occupational therapist focused a little bit more on assistive technology, although I did, too. But my emphasis was more on AAC. And so now I conduct AAC assessments for the district um, and then I consult and then also provide some of the direct um, the direct treatment therapy for it. That's amazing. I love how you like identified the problem and then you were like, this is a solution and I'm going to, you know, learn more about AAC. And it really is a collaboration with the Mm -hmm. school team that works with the students. And AAC is so personalized that Mm -hmm. to just have a person drop in every so often is so not effective whatsoever. Yeah. As your experience as a person of color, what have you noticed in our field that has made an impact, Hmm. whether it be positive or negative? I'll think about that question some more. While I'm thinking about it, though, um, I do want to go back to um, the the need around AAC in the field. Um, So I was just talking a little bit about why I became um, an AAC specialist. And so um, I really just wanted to say that after I became an AAC specialist, I really started um, to become more aware of how significant the need is um, in AAC. For example, I have like a 21-year-old student who will be getting an AAC device for the first time but has needed one, you know, like his whole life. Um, but this has also like brought me into um, private therapy, and so I also... Um, I also work for myself um, and do augmentative alternative communication assessments um, and treatment and otherwise I'm able to fulfill a need um, for for students and clients that unfortunately aren't able to get it in whatever district they're in or like, you know, wherever they are because AAC professionals are so few and far between, but also so needed. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, I think that is super, super true. And with the advancements in technology, there's so much out there. Mm-hmm. It's just we don't know about it. Yeah. And so having an AAC, AT specialist um, to consult with or to bounce ideas off of or to assess your student because they're going to be maybe more knowledgeable about all the variety of things mm-hmm. that could help the student communicate. I think that's yeah. so, so needed. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. And then to have to, again, a specialist, like – then me as a therapist who doesn't know as much doesn't feel like I'm failing that Mm -hmm. student because Mm -hmm. I think there's many times where it's like our um we're we are supposed to know about so much Mm -hmm. that it kind of makes us a generalist yeah yeah and and we come from a caring place but Mm -hmm. we don't always have all of the tools or resources to provide that so yeah, yeah, yeah. So and true. we set such high expectations of ourselves, you totally. know. Yeah, and um, I mean, AAC is such a niche field too, where you have to try so many different things, mm-hmm. and it's really um, taking the time to really see what 
what is going to work for that student. But I really wish there were more AAC specialists. And I that's something that I really want to learn more about. Yeah. And I've sought it out. And I want to continue doing that. Because, um, yeah, every student deserves a voice. So mm. we need to be there to provide what they need yeah. when they need it. Yeah. And not have so many stories where people are 21 years old and getting their AAC for their first time. Because yeah. what about all those years you know without it what how did they communicate what they needed you know yeah so definitely and then they're only gonna have one more year yeah and then who's gonna support them after that and then what yeah Mm -hmm. yeah when they're still learning to be an AAC user you know and so um even trying to go through you know like medical insurance so that they can have the device and like keep it over time you know but who's gonna support with the implementation when you've only had a year with the student and the family to help them so yeah I know I'll be reaching out to you in the future like any AAC stuff because yeah I kind of feel like I know where to start but then along the way I'm like am I questioning myself am I doing it right am I you know providing the right types of devices for the student Mm -hmm. are they accessible all of that and even I I think you know technology is always changing this is my um, fourth year you know working toward being an assistive technology and AAC specialist and so even sometimes it's you know it's I question myself like mm-hmm. is this the best thing oh and look there's this new technology and finally this device does this thing that we always wanted it to do you know and right. so like even myself I'm like I'm always learning new things and um, there are always wonderful things coming out and also sometimes we find something that's really great and then for whatever reason the company stops producing it and it mm-hmm. goes away and then we have to find a substitute right. you know and so I think for everybody like always just being open to growing and you know to the practice mm-hmm. of knowing that like we're just not going to know it all all the time and that's okay and I think that's what makes it overwhelming sometimes yeah. like there's so much out there where do I begin yeah. but at the same time it's like lifelong learning right we're yeah constantly teaching ourselves new things yeah for sure Mm -hmm. for sure yeah that's why sometimes I refer to myself as a practitioner Mm -hmm. versus I don't know whatever else I could call myself but (laughs) (laughs) yeah because it is a practice yeah it's a practice it is absolutely yeah so that kind of made me think a little bit too about um what are some things in the field that you notice that can be changed or improved upon or many any recommendations you might have like in the field so i know ac getting more ac providers and specialists mm-hmm. would be great but is there anything else you think yes i oh, i diversity. think <laughs> right i think um i think that as a part of our regular curriculum um, especially at the graduate program, but even at the undergraduate program, I believe that the field would benefit significantly um, from taking classes in cultural humility. Um, I think yes, um, we serve a lot of different kinds of clients. Um, we serve clients from a myriad of backgrounds, socioeconomic cultural, mm-hmm. racial, I mean, you name it. Ages we come to client ages. Yeah. I mean, we, our clients have many different intersectionalities and I don't feel as a field that we always do our due diligence to honor people's intersectionalities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that we, we would all be better off, um, if, if everybody 
um, had to take a class and even just around increasing their awareness, you know, for cultural humility and not even just cultural understanding. Like you can always understand somebody's culture from your own intersectionalities. And the point isn't always to understand every single culture all the time. I'm not sure that that's 100% possible. But if you have cultural humility, you're able to meet people where they are and be willing to learn from those people so that you can best serve them. Um, sometimes I, I hear and read things that I feel um, are problematic, mm-hmm. where essentially sometimes I feel like some clinicians um, or practitioners are um, often placing their own biases on families around what parents should or should not do for their children. Um, and so I don't feel like that always gives um, practitioners the opportunity to be able to gain relational trust with the people that they're working with and serving. And therefore, I feel like that inhibits the client's ability um, to make progress. If the parents don't like you and the kids don't like you, um, or if they don't feel like they can trust you, or they don't feel like you're doing your due diligence to begin to understand them, uh, then you won't be able to make the clinical gains that you're seeking. And so I feel like as as a program, just like as a profession, um, especially as a profession where 92% um, of the people that are in the profession identify as white, and only 8%, according to the most recent statistic given by ASHA, only 8% are people of color. 8% all yeah. people of color, and mm-hmm. less than 4% of those people are black. So the other 4% are something else, which is like, you know, some kind of Latina, Asian, Indian, Middle Eastern. So the indigenous. 4% is just something mm-hmm. else, indigenous. Yeah. I mean, and even, I mean, the, their indigenous people even are a fraction of a fraction of the fraction mm-hmm. um, of the people of color that are the 8%. Um, and so I feel like... Um, there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of work to be had around, um, you know, listening even just to the clinicians that are already practicing who identify as people of color. Absolutely. Um, but then right. also, you know, like what what are our um, colleagues who are not people of color who are otherwise identify as white? Like what are they doing to make sure that they're able to serve the people, really serve the clients and the people that they're working with? Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself. Absolutely. I agree 100%, especially about what you said of meeting them halfway. Like, there's no way you can always understand every culture, like you said. So that halfway medium and just having that humility to learn from someone else and not going in there like, I know everything Mm -hmm. and you don't. So I'm here to tell you, right? Yeah, Yeah. definitely. And I I feel that um, many people in our profession still use Um, What I call the professional model, I think some people may call it other things, Um, you know, but there's, I feel like there's different, there's different models, you know, there's like the medical model of like, you know, everybody needs to be treated, like that's a disorder, we got to do something about it. Um, And so um, I feel like some people still use the professional model where like I am the person with all of the knowledge, you must listen to me Mm -hmm. and what I'm prescribing to you if you want your child to get better, do better or be better. Um, and so I, f- I feel like, you know, like continued listening and, um, and not coming in as the like professional that knows it all, but instead um, coming in as like, you know, somebody who's here, um, you know, to offer information and to work with the family um, to get the gains that they're seeking. Yeah, I agree with you, especially with language. It's so connected to culture, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, especially pragmatic language, you know, like, um, you know, in many cultures, like the, you know, the way that we think about, like, you know, power and language is really different. You Mm -hmm. know, sometimes 
different cultures show respect in many different ways you know you show respect by like listening you know Mm -hmm. some cultures you show respect by reciprocating a conversation Mm -hmm. you know and it just is so different but I don't feel like we always do our due diligence to find out what the cultural norms are in families and I feel like with the very little bit of multicultural knowledge that we sometimes get from the programs that we're in a lot of the times it's textbooks that we often know can be quite biased um, are telling us how we should view other cultures so when I was in graduate school um, we had a speaker a guest speaker um, come in to my um, school-based um, speech pathology class and so this class was like I think one to two hours a week um, and it talked to us like about IEPs and it talked to us about um, 504s and just mm-hmm. kind of different things about the school-based process um, and so I'll never forget that um, an SLP came in She was telling us about one of her students on her caseload. So as she's telling us a story about the student, um, to me at least, it became clear just like a couple minutes in that she was talking about a student that either identified as black or African-American. And so the student also had autism. And so one of the things that they often teach us to in graduate school is to work with the family on the goals that they want for their children. Mm -hmm. And so most practitioners will ask the families like, well, Um, What do you want your child to work on? You know, here's my opinion. What can we do together to to get your kid to where they're going? Um, And so this particular individual was telling us a story um, about this kid um, with autism who had some behaviors um, and needed language support and, and needed like different areas of support that, of course, the speech language pathologist could could provide intervention in. And so as this woman is telling the story, She goes on to say to us that the mom requested that the students work on or that her um, that her kid works on saying TH. And so um, she looks at the entire class. I'm sitting in the class. She looks at the entire class and she says, you guys, what do we know about uh, the African-American population and TH? So me and my classmates are looking at each other like, what is this woman talking about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, where is she going? with this? And where is she going with this? And so she goes on to say they don't use th and i like gasped and i was like oh my gosh and so then um this woman she like continues to talk and she as she's telling the story at some point she like puts out her hand toward me like open hand Mm. um and as she's telling the story she tells us eventually that the student identifies as african-american and then she says don't worry i'm not looking at you and I remember in the moment feeling like super embarrassed, like super upset. Um, and I couldn't believe that this woman had like come into my classroom, which until that moment felt safe mm-hmm. and like totally. Um, That's trash. It's like, you know, she was like She's discriminated, trash. microaggressed. Ugh. She's totally trash. Right. Um, and I was so upset. I was like so upset. Um, and then my teacher who was teaching the class didn't say anything and didn't do anything about mm. it. Um, and I remember being really upset by it and it wasn't until like maybe two or three years ago Mm -hmm. that I could tell the story without like crying because it was so upsetting. I like left, left class that day, like crying and I went home. I actually had another class after that and I was like, I can't actually learn. Like I can't sit in a class for three hours and learn because like not only did this woman come into like my class and microaggress me, but like my peers didn't say or do anything. My teacher didn't say or do anything. And like, what does that mean for me? Mm -hmm. 
And so um, I feel like it's really important, like I was talking about earlier, to have these conversations around cultural humility and that, to have these classes so that things like that don't happen. Like I'm, I missed out on some education that like I was paying for out of my pocket mm-hmm. um, because I couldn't sit in class and sustain. Um, but in addition to that, one of my good friends, one of my best friends who was also a brown woman, followed up with the teacher not even a few days later um, to tell her how I felt. And the teacher said that she looked at me um, and it looked like I was okay. And so she didn't do anything about it. And so my friend told her like, she wasn't okay. You should send her an email and just like apologize or say like, I'm sorry, we're not going to bring her back. But she didn't, the teacher didn't do that. Mm -hmm. In fact, I haven't heard anything, you know, she hasn't said anything, um, you know, since then, you know, but I thought about like, you know, what it means to be, you know, like a brown person in these in these programs is that you have to deal with stuff like that. Mm-hmm. One of the good things that came from it is that some of my classmates came forth and they, they talked about how messed up they thought it was. Um, and some of them said that they, you know, went forth to, um, you know, to complain. But I'm not sure that it, the school did anything about it. Um, and I'm not sure whether they continue to invite that woman back or not. Um, the other thing is that she wasn't invited to be there. Um, her colleague, who was a teacher, was invited to be there, and she came along with her colleague. So a part of it um, was even more upsetting because a part of it felt like, well, she wasn't supposed to be here anyway, but she's like here, you know, like microaggressing me, you yes. know, and she, she wasn't even supposed to be here. Um, but I, I didn't, you know, it's been over six years, I think, since that happened, and I've like never forgotten it, and I probably Mm -hmm. never will. Mm -hmm. But what makes me more upset is that me, like a person who's sitting in a college-level class in a master's degree program amongst my peers and in front of my teacher, that she could do that to me. So what is she doing, you know, like to to the kids that are on her caseload, you know, and what is she saying to them, and what is she saying to her families who hold even less power than I do in the moment than when she said that to me? What's more important is that a book told her that black people don't use TH and that instead they substitute F for TH. Um, And that's really problematic because not all black people speak African-American English. There are people who don't identify as black who speak African-American English. And still we're having to fight what now I believe are stereotypes. I want to validate African-American English because I am bi-dialectal and I use African-American English when I'm out with my friends and in social situations. And I use standard American English, although can we not with that term? But I use standard American English when I'm at work um, and when I'm, you know, supposed to be in a otherwise professional setting, you know, but still it's problematic because it doesn't mean that the sound shouldn't be, shouldn't be taught. And it's, if the family wanted the sound to be taught, then it should be taught. So a hundred percent, all of it was like, all of it was problematic. Well, I remember being in college and having a textbook uh, that still used the term African American vernacular English, mm-hmm. and I was like, "What are they? What are they trying to reference here? Like, that doesn't even sound like an appropriate name. Like, even using standard American English doesn't sound culturally appropriate either. Because mm-hmm. what's standard? What's normal? Right. Who decides that? Right? Right. And who yeah. decides? And who labeled this African American vernacular? Like, I." do not agree with those terms whatsoever definitely especially to you know when the history of english is elitist 
you know totally. so like when we talk about English you know like some of the ways in which people were able to determine what class like socioeconomic class were you know like way back in the day um, they used it by like the type of English they spoke and so even still we see you know in this day and age where of course right now the big thing is you know like African-American English um, sometimes we're talking about like um, Spanglish, Tagalish, you know, all those things. But the reality is that like all language is, is really important. Like all language types are real. Um, and it's not, it's not up to, um, or on, you know, like speech language pathologists, we don't do things like teach like every single word. It should be this way. It shouldn't be this way. The reality is that we teach language, we teach communication, you know, but the most important things are that, you know, we don't get to decide what is standard. Right. You know, and, the, mm -hmm. and like you said, there's not, there's not a real standard, you know, yeah. like there, I feel like there are like societal standards and there are um, societal expectations of what language should look like. And of course we provide intervention around disordered language and that's really important. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when it comes to thinking about what, what the standard is, you know, the standard doesn't, it doesn't exist mm -hmm. compared against what? Mm -hmm. Right. It all depends where you live, where you grew up. Mm -hmm. There's the all different, different types of dialects. Yeah. 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 There is no standard American English, so take that out of the textbook. Take, yeah. <laughs> take it out. Take it out. Do us all a favor. All right. Yeah. yeah. Um, you were talking about microaggressions, and I think some people don't really understand what that means. Can you mm -hmm. explain what microaggressions are? Yeah, microaggressions. Microaggressions are like, like the subtle indignities that are said to, or like placed upon, or um, given to people. And so I recently, maybe in the last couple of years, I watched a video um, where microaggressions were being compared to mosquito bites. Um, and so the idea with microaggressions um, are one, impact versus intent. Um, and two, kind of like, you know, I like the mosquito bite reference because with microaggressions, sometimes they happen to people every now and then. And so I'm speaking more toward um, racial microaggressions, but of course there are other types of microaggressions too. Um, but in terms of racial microaggressions, you know, sometimes, sometimes some, somebody believes that you do something because of your intersectionalities. So just last week I was at work and so, as you all know, I work on a school campus. And so a mom came into the office. She was really upset. And I walked through the door because I think I needed to, like, make copies. So I walked through the door to the office. And this woman shouted through the window, your attendance. Are you the attendance lady? And I was like, no. And so, thankfully, one of the people um, that worked in the front, she's like, that's not the attendance lady. Um, she was like, you need to sit down, <laughs> you know, to the lady. But, you know, it was microaggressive because this woman assumed instead of like being on a school campus and at least first assuming that I was a teacher, um, mm -hmm. assumed that like I was the attendance lady. Um, and so it's microaggressive because she didn't believe that I could be one of the degree holders on campus. Mm -hmm. And so... I had papers in my hand and all kinds of indicators to believe that I was a, at least a teacher. She probably would have never guessed that I was a speech pathologist, um, but she didn't think that. Um, in addition, an, like another, I guess, example of a microaggression is these people came onto our campus to talk to us about retirement. And so um, 
And so she, the people around, um, they were asking around if anybody Sorry, wanted Karina, to. Can you say that one more time? Sure. The people uh, that came onto your campus. So there were some people that came onto our campus to talk to us about retirement. Um, and so they were talking to everybody, um, like essentially anybody that wanted to talk to them. And so they approached me and I said, no, I wasn't interested in talking to them about retirement um, for, for whatever reason, which are my own. And so they said, why not? You're an aide? And I was like, no. no. And if I say that I don't want to talk to you about retirement, it is not your job to follow up and ask me why I don't. The answer is no. And then you say thank you and then you leave. But the microaggression is that it was problematic that after I said no and gave them no indication about what I did on that campus, that they thought that I didn't want to talk to them about retirement um, because I was one of the paraprofessionals on campus. And so paraprofessionals are really important people. We all need them, but that has nothing to do with the moment. This man thought that I was a paraprofessional likely because of how I identify both as black and as a woman. And so it was problematic and it, and it was microaggressive. And so microaggressions, you know, can occur, um, you know, to, to many types of people for, you know, many different reasons, socioeconomic status, you know, gender, culture, race. Um, but the difficulty with microaggressions is that often people can experience them, um, you know, many, many, many times in a day. And sometimes when there's one or two, you're able to write off the microaggression and kind of keep going forth with your day. But like mosquito bites, you know, one or two mosquito bites is like, oh, it, it's a mosquito bite. It sucks, but, but it'll be fine. However, if you have 10, 15, 20 mosquito bites, you know, like that's when you start to feel really uncomfortable, you know, mm -hmm. like you have to take medicine, you have to do something about it. And so when you're experiencing microaggressions every day, multiple times a day, you know, it can be really, um, it can feel really drowning, you know, it can feel really upsetting. Um, and sometimes for some people, it really impacts their ability to do their job. And so um, I, I am often mistaken for, um, I'm the only black person that works at my job for, of, of everybody, it's just me. Um, but there is um, one of my colleagues who is also my good friend, um, who is a brown woman, um, she has a name that most people identify with as being um, like more of a black name, I guess. And so people often call me her name and people often call her my name. Um, and, and that is microaggressive. Mm -hmm. And it, it happens enough that it has become, um, it has become upsetting, you know, for a lot of reasons. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I, I like that analogy too, because, um, it's like the picking away at you slowly, slowly, right. slowly. And then at the end of it, you're like so frustrated and mm -hmm. so upset. And when you want to call people out on it too, because it's gotten to a point where you're like completely just done with people being so microaggressive towards you, mm -hmm. um, they'll label you as like, unstable mm -hmm. the angry black women or the angry angry brown person mm -hmm. um they'll say you don't know how to code switch you don't know how to act at work and like that's that's the thing that is like the extra layer of frustration for mm -hmm. me because if i'm the only brown person on campus mm -hmm. you people are all being aggressive to me mm -hmm. how do you expect me to react mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely what it is. I mean, in a part of, you know, like a part of this is, you know, many people who experience microaggressions have learned to call people in. So instead of calling people out, like you call me so-and-so name and you should say sorry for it, which is calling somebody out, calling people in, you know? And so when you're calling somebody in, you're using it um, as an, you're using what happened or the situation as an educational tool to support the person that microaggressed you um, and to, to help them understand why that was a microaggression. A lot of the times with microaggressions, it's impact versus intent. Sometimes people don't know that they've microaggressed you mm-hmm. and they can't know sometimes unless you make them aware. And in addition to that, you know, sometimes people, even after finding out that they've microaggressed you, they still don't care to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And so when you call people in, you give them the opportunity to want to learn and to want to grow, you know? And so um, sometimes, you know, when you're calling somebody in, it's like having a private conversation with them about, you know, earlier today, you said this to me, this is how it made me feel, you know, I, I just want to make you aware, you know, and if the same thing keeps happening, like continuing to have those conversations, you know, until they're not doing it anymore. A part of the difficulty with microaggressions is that um, microaggressions can't always be generalized. So sometimes they know that this thing, you know, calling, you know, like the only two Latina people on campus calling them each other's names, like that's a microaggression. They've been made aware, they know it's a microaggression, but sometimes they don't always know that another situation could also be deemed a microaggression, you mm-hmm. know, and so working to, to call people in is kind of one of the best ways, you know, but one of the significant difficulties with that is that some people don't like being wrong. And some people can't quite understand why you can't take the joke, you know, and some people can't um, quite understand that they were they were wanting to compliment you, you know, like it, mm-hmm. it was a compliment, you know, but if you're if somebody tells you, you know, that they experienced negative feelings or had a negative reaction to something that you said or did, you don't get to decide whether it was a compliment. You, you apologize for hurting their feelings. And then you tell them that you're going to grow from it and then go and do that, like do the work that it takes, because even saying it is not enough. You have to do the work that it takes to be able to grow and be open and be willing to grow. You have to be approachable. You know, if somebody approaches you and and tells you that they microaggressed you and then you have a negative reaction, action like that person is not going to be willing to approach you but like let's also be real it is not on the person that you microaggress to continue to exactly. educate you and give you this mm-hmm. information it yeah, is a lot of emotional labor exactly what it a is huge a lot weight of on your labor. shoulders like after being so upset like. right right mm-hmm. um and and it impacts the bottom line which is our ability to do our jobs and our ability to adequately serve um, the clients and the students that we work with mm-hmm. you know One thing that I want to know about is how do you stay passionate or positive about the field and work and like what what things do you do to refill your cup when things get rough? I definitely feel like speech pathology is exactly where I need to be. I feel like super, super, super grateful um, to have found and fell in love with this field like at such a young age, like when I was in graduate school. Um, And of course it was like with the work that I did around interning um, or shadowing, it wasn't interning, but shadowing, which is what got me here. A lot of the work that I did to prepare me to be in this very place is what got me to this very place. Um, And so I wanna give speech pathology that it is, 
it is my bread and butter. It is the way that I serve others. And it is, it is what I enjoy the most. And I could never imagine myself doing something different. Um, especially because there's so many scopes of practice where you can like change a scope and feel like you're doing something totally new, but you're still a speech pathologist. Mm -hmm. I love it so much. Um, but sometimes, sometimes, um, sometimes the emotional labor is hard. Um, in my pursuit of like serving others, um, a lot of the times I advocate for clients. Um, and a lot of the times this means, you know, like calling their other educators, calling their other therapists and calling the other people in their lives to talk about like, you know, how the students are doing and um, to advocate for them in ways that sometimes the students and clients don't feel like they can say to them, but feel like they can say to me. Um, and so sometimes that gets tiring. And so sometimes I really get, I refill my cup by um, being a part of this group called sisters Yay. so one of my good friends shout out. <laughs> um so one of my good friends um lucia who you guys saw on the last podcast um so we a mutual friend of ours introduced us when we when i was still in school i was actually in graduate school at the time um little did we know at that time that we'd become good friends um but she introduced me to the sisters page and so it wasn't when i was in graduate school it wasn't until i was two years out of graduate school when i went to i went to kasha of course like i told you guys about the thesis poster but i was there for different reasons and in a different mindset but it wasn't until two years out out of graduate school where I met and like spoke with um, and really had like a very in-depth really great conversation um, with another black SLP so like in the flesh for the first time ever um, it took me two years as a practicing clinician to meet a black SLP mm -hmm. um, and so it was really great for Lucia to link me to the sisters group which also occurred like a little I think a little bit more than a year um, when I got out of graduate school is when I found them the group on Facebook through Lucia. Um, and then after that, Lucia and then a couple other um, now friends and colleagues in the field and I would get together. And so thankfully, the group has like grown and grown and grown. And we have found like a ton of other people. And so I, I really, really fill my cup like professionally, um, and even sometimes personally through these women. Mm -hmm. um, but then I also fill my cup through just like, you know, like hanging out with my husband, um, and my family, I live with my husband and my mom. And so I get to spend a lot of time with them and my siblings come in from, they're in all different parts of the United States. And so um, when they come in, you know, like I just talk to them and we hang out. Mm -hmm. And so um, a lot of the times too, I um, nerd out on like <laughs> speech related stuff. And so right now I'm nerding out on AAC. Um, and so I spend a lot of the time doing that and then building my, um, like building my private practice. Um, and I enjoy cooking, so I cook and I bake, um, and that's really what I do, like for the most part. And and I travel, so I just came so back from a six-week vacation for my birthday. So awesome. I had a big milestone birthday over the summer, and I celebrated all summer, y'all. Yay! All that's the way to summer. do it. Leo season. <laughs> Leo <Yes>. season. <laughs> Leo season. <laughs> so, um, so um, me and one of, and two of my good friends actually, we um, all went together to Europe. One of my really great friends planned it. It was her idea, and she kind of roped me in. Thank goodness, it was amazing. Um, and we traveled through the Balkans. We went on a road trip through the Balkans. So we started in Slovenia. Um, we went to Croatia, Montenegro, Bosnia. Um, and then we dropped back, we dropped the car off um, back in Croatia and Zagreb. Um, and then we went to uh, Amsterdam and we went to um, Spain. 
Um, and we went to Prague. And so we actually ended in Spain and then we went home. But uh, for six weeks this summer, I got to kind of, um, you know, travel a lot. And that was amazing. So I, I travel in my spare time. And yes. that's how I really fill my cup. Yes, yes. Can't black girls travel. Her. Hashtag black girls travel. <laughs> right, black girl travel. I can't wait for a sister's traveling trip. <laughs> right. It will be so amazing. Come back. Yes. Right. Retreat. It'll be so amazing. Yes. yes. Yeah, beautiful. Yes. All right. Um, so wrapping things up, we wanted to ask you, what is some advice or words of encouragement you would like to give to your younger self? I would tell my younger self to take up all the space. Yes. yes. I think I would tell my younger self that I belong to be in every place that I'm in, um, that I deserve to be there, you know, and that I, I get to like that I get to make mistakes and it's okay. And that when I'm making mistakes that I'm not really representing everybody, you know, mm -hmm. that it's, it's okay to be who you want to be. And that it's nobody's job to tell you what you should be like or act like or do. Um, and that not everybody will understand you and that's okay. And mm -hmm. it's also not your job um, to educate everybody all the time about who you are. I love it. Yeah. Oh, Karina, you fill my soul. Thank you so thank much. You. Thank, you. thank you for thank doing you. this interview with us. And I'm sure, you know, the people that are watching or listening to this, like really thank you too, because you have just dropped knowledge after knowledge after, you know, juicy, juicy bit of info for us. And so I'm so appreciative. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you. Thank you.